Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest today is economist Dr. Tanya Andreeva, director of economic initiatives at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale. Uh, Tanya is uh, a noted economist and has done very important and interesting work on uh, nutrition-related issues and the economic factors that drive them. So welcome. Glad to have you here. Oh, good morning, Kelly. Thank you. So let's first talk about the issue about how important economics are in considering changes in the nutrition landscape and reduction in obesity. People very often think about education's important and policies are important, but where do economics fit in this? How important of a driver are they of nutrition choices people make? I think economics is extremely important because it provides um, fundamentals about how people make choices under certain constraints. So, for example, they have budget constraints, they have time constraints, they face certain prices, and economics provides a framework uh, how people use all these constraints and make choices uh, in terms of food policy and obesity. We're you know, talking about food choices. Now, what are some of the things that affect the economics of food? So when you see a bag of chips or a bottle of soda or an apple or grapes or whatever it is, what are some of the economic factors that are driving that final price that consumers see? Uh, they include prices, they include income, uh, taste, uh, marketing, uh, a number of factors, access, uh, what's available, what uh, substitutions are available for every product. Uh, so it's both uh, financial, kind of you know, monetary and non-monetary uh, factors. And I know people talk a lot about government policies that may affect uh, the price of food. What are some of the primary ones people are thinking about? Um, they're very important, and they include uh, subsidies, agricultural subsidies, particularly corn and soy subsidies that everybody is talking about, uh, sugar subsidies. I mean, there are a lot of subsidies in the United States and the European Union. So these are extremely important, and they affect not only prices that we're talking about, for example, corn, but also beef and milk and uh, through basically indirect effects of um, feeding animals. And uh, so this is just a couple of examples that we can talk about. You know, so I, I don't want to get into the subsidy issue too much because it's so complicated and probably only a pure economist like you would even begin to understand them. But you made this very interesting point that a, a subsidy, for example, on corn can ripple through the food supply in so many ways because you affect the price of the corn, but then everything corn goes into, like feeding animals, so it affects the cost of the meat or the milk that the animals may produce, etc. And I know that for many years people didn't pay much attention to these subsidies except people in the agriculture world, but now they're being thought about more in the, the, in the light of the nutrition impact they have. Uh, do you see that as a positive development? Uh, certainly. I mean, the government intervenes a lot in this uh, market, and uh, one example is uh, subsidies to uh, produce uh, biofuels. It also affected corn prices and, and, as a result, food prices. And we're not talking just about the United States, also about international markets, because the U.S. is such an important um, exporter of corn and other you know, grains. So there are a lot of effects, direct and indirect effects and very, very difficult to quantify. But there's no question that prices would be different uh, for a lot of products, very important products, basic milk, uh, sugar, everything, basically, if we didn't have corn subsidies and soy subsidies. 
I know there are philosophical differences of opinion among economists about the degree to which um, policy should address some of these economic issues, the degree to which government should be involved. And I know there's this fundamental free market type of approach uh, that a lot of economists uh, embrace. And I'd like, would you mind explaining that approach? And then we'll talk about an alternative approach after that. Sure. Um, a lot of economists, um, basically the fundamental uh, story of you know, our economic models is that the government should intervene only if there's a market failure, meaning that uh, there's, for example, imperfect information or externalities or public goods. So these are all examples of market failures. And with imperfect information, we're talking about um, providing complete information so that consumers can make informed choices. So with food policy, for example, we can talk about uh, labeling, you know, nutrition facts panels and stuff like that so that consumers can make choices having complete information. Because if that was just left to manufacturers, you know, they would choose whatever they want to, you know, provide information or not. And um, Let's talk about that imperfect information concept. So if I understand you correctly, Many economists believe the government should stay out and let the, the free market factors influence the price of things. And, 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 and in the end of the day, things will sort out in the most beneficial way if government stays out of the picture. But economists agree that there are certain circumstances under which government involvement is justified, if I understand you correctly. That is right. And that imperfect information is one set of such circumstances. And if, now correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding about that concept is that if the seller of some product and the buyer of the product have the same amount of information about that product, then the system is working correctly. But when one party has more information and the other is at a disadvantage, the consumer, in this case we're talking about, then you meet that that test of imperfect information. Now, is that is that, yeah, just correct. correct yes. way of putting it? That's okay. Right. And you were talking about if consumers aren't fully aware of the information they're, I mean, they're getting plenty of information from the companies, but if they're misled or deceived in some ways, then they're receiving imperfect information. Is that correct? That is correct. And they can make choices that are not, uh, you know, in the best of their interests and that they wouldn't have made if they had complete information about these products. So they might, you know, make choices uh, that would benefit companies selling these products, but not actually themselves. Okay. And with, in, with externalities, an example is, and some economists actually say, well, yeah, if we can prove that there are externalities um, related to obesity, then yeah, we wouldn't mind any, you know, some government intervention, uh, because there's no question if there are external costs, meaning that uh, some, you know, one person's actions affect, um, you know, a lot of other people, for example, second smoke um, and uh, drunk driving, um, there's no question that the government has to intervene to prevent costs to other people or society at large. So with obesity, some economists just question that there is actually that external costs of obesity exist. So our goal is to prove that they do and that there is you know, a very urgent need to intervene in so the what market. Would, what would be an example of some of those external costs? Now, oh, by the way, my simplistic view of economics is that, the, the, to sort of explain this concept of externalities a little bit more, is that if, if there's a transaction between a buyer and a seller, and some person who's not involved in that transaction is affected by it, 
then you have externalities because there are other people affected by that transaction. Is that correct? That's one example. Another example is that one person makes a choice, let's say, to smoke, and then, you know, his choice or her choice affects other people, uh, people's behavior, right? right? Right. Okay. Or, like I said, drunk driving. And with obesity, one, you know, one example that people are usually talking about, economists are usually talking about, is uh, healthcare costs. That given that we have Medicare, Medicaid, a lot of programs, uh, private insurance as well, where uh, as you know, consumers, we all share the cost of um, you know, one person's healthcare expenditure. So with obesity, healthcare expenditures for sure are higher for obese people diabetes, heart disease, and so forth are very expensive. Uh, so one example is uh, healthcare expenditures, disability costs, uh, productivity losses. So these are all examples uh, where economists uh, say we, we do have, a, you know, we do have a case in terms of uh, externalities and obesity. But there are also economists who question uh, whether that's, you know, true or not. It's hard to imagine how, why anybody would question that because Obviously, the costs of obesity are significant. I mean, in you know, billions and billions of dollars. And if I my the number I've heard is about half of those costs are paid from public funds. That is correct. Yeah, Medicare that, and Medicaid. Meaning that everybody, whether or not they're overweight, is affected by this, and that becomes a pretty clear externality. How would anybody disagree with that? Uh, they say it's uh, some way of internalizing this course, which uh, is not quite clear to me, but uh, just to you know inform our audience, there are definitely views uh, pro and against the arguments there are external costs of obesity. Uh, but obviously, I believe that there's no question that uh, there are significant externalities of obesity, and the government has the right and has actually uh, you know some obligation to uh, correct these externalities for the benefit of uh, all consumers, uh, for the benefit of society at large. Okay, so for reasons of imperfect information and externalities, it sounds like you believe that several of the criteria that warrant government intervention have been satisfied. Right. Okay, so let's talk about some of the research that you've done in particular, which I think is fascinating. Uh, You've done some very interesting research on the Women, Infants, and Children program. Could you describe some of that? Sure. Um, Based on the recommendations of the Institute of Medicine in 2007, I believe, the USDA has changed uh, their packages, food packages, for uh, the WIC program, Women, Infants, and Children. So uh, participants in this program um, get about um, $50 in food, but uh, specific food, uh, healthy food, fruits and vegetables, milk, uh, infant formula, grains. And uh, based on the recommendations, um, a lot more healthy foods were added to these packages. And uh, some of the foods, um, some of the allowances were changed. So, for example, less whole milk, less cheese, less juice uh, uh, was, uh, you know, new packages have less cheese and so forth. And uh, one of the main changes was adding fruits and vegetables and whole wheat bread. So a lot of new healthy foods were added to the packages. And uh, this was uh, basically the main change in the food assistance program, uh, specifically the WIC program, since the the 70s, since the program was established. And it provided um, a nice natural experiment, in a sense, to see how these changes... uh, 
affected uh, access to food, access, access to healthy food, uh, food choices among participants, uh, diet quality, uh, you know, BMI and so forth. And we, uh, it is very important to remember that about half of uh, infants born in the United States uh, participate in this program. So and vast numbers of children. Yeah, a lot of a lot of children. So it's not a minor program, and this is why, even uh, you know, such a change as just you know, a few pro- new products in the quick um, uh, package could affect uh, millions of people and a lot of retailers, a lot of food stores as it serves these uh, participants, uh, meaning a lot of neighborhoods. Uh, and uh, in our study. In Connecticut, we uh, went to about 300 food stores before and after the change. We did uh, inventories of what these uh, food stores were selling, uh, looked at prices, availability, variety, and we saw a very significant improvement in in the availability of healthy foods in WIC stores after the policy change. So as a result, communities that didn't have, for example, fruits and vegetables, so whole wheat, bread, brown rice, healthy products, before the big change, after the big change, uh, a lot of stores, uh, specifically weak stores, but also non-weak stores, saw improvement in uh, in the provision of healthy foods. So they were trying to serve weak clients, but as a result, everybody, uh, weak and non-weak participants, uh, could uh, access healthy foods in their communities. So we saw it as a very significant and beneficial improvement in access to healthy food, which is very important uh, to, you know, improve our nutrition in low-income communities. Well, that's quite a positive finding because when the, when the government established the policy, there was no telling what would happen with these stores and neighborhoods. But the fact that the nutrition landscape in these stores has improved, both for the people affected by the program, but people in general, is a very positive secondary It is, effect. it is. And what we also showed that, uh, for example, before the government um, change their packages. They were concerned that some uh, weak stores would uh, would be unable to provide these healthy foods, and they they would choose just to drop out from the program. And our study showed that didn't happen. That a lot of stores uh, are, they really want to participate because you know this gives them extra business, and they they were willing and they changed very quickly. They provided healthy food. They found suppliers. They did everything to uh, maintain their weak uh, status. So there was no problem at all in terms of, uh, at least, you know, in the, sh- in the long term, there was no problem implementing these changes. So there was basically these concerns were not justified. Now, this relates to a broader issue that you've also done some research on, which is what sort of foods are available in underserved areas. And there's the lore out there is that there are food deserts and people in poor neighborhoods don't have, have access to healthy foods. What they do have access too, tends to cost more than it does in the other areas. And I know you've done some research that puts that idea to a test. So can you describe what you found with that? Uh, yeah, we did some research looking at prices in low-income and high-income neighborhoods, and it's true, like we just talked about, the availability of healthy foods before the week uh, program change. Uh, that, uh, very often it is very hard to find healthy foods in low-income communities, and when you do find them, the quality might be not so good and prices might be higher. So the price factor, uh, as we talked in the beginning, uh, is very important, especially for people on uh, uh, with low, uh, limited um limited means and um, it's, it's very important to provide access to um, 
healthy foods in these neighborhoods, but also make sure they can actually afford uh, these foods. So one uh, example is uh, the program that the USDA is doing now in um, in some stores in uh, Massachusetts, where they're providing uh, subsidies to uh, people on uh, SNAP, on people uh, using food stamps, which we now refer as uh, SNAP benefits, that they can buy fruits and vegetables and get a subsidy, a 30% subsidy uh, back to their uh, food stamp uh, benefits. so this program is to encourage purchases of fruits and vegetables and not only pr- uh, provide access, but also provide this financial incentive to make a choice, make a choice in, in terms of choosing healthy products such as fruits and vegetables. And I would say, you know, in the future, we might talk about other products, um, you know, kind of incentivizing uh, choices of uh, purchases of healthy foods. So the way that program works in, in Massachusetts, so if a person buys $10, Worth of fruits and vegetables, then they get and they get three dollars and thirty three cents. That is right. Put back into their account yes. that they could use, and they can use that three dollars for fruits and vegetables or for anything. They can buy anything they want that's approved uh, by SNAP, which is basically any food, any beverage except for alcohol beverages. And it is as of now, it is a pilot. So uh, there's a big study looking at how this uh, change, uh, how this uh, policy can affect choices of not just fruits and vegetables, but all kinds of products. So, for example, if they save this $3, as you mentioned, are they going to buy another healthy food or are they going to buy, you know, soda? So, which is, of course, very important. And uh, so this experiment uh, will show how people, you know, change their purchases, what they're buying, uh, and how it affects overall quality of their diets and BMI. And it is an experiment, so we have people randomized into a control group and... Um, an intervention group, so it's 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 a very interesting study. You can you can see why um, the testing of public policies and the evaluation of these interventions that the government tries is so important because you could see this working well or you could see it working poorly, and and all you have to go on is intuition. So it's why the sort of research that you do to test these things is so important. Um, let's talk about another topic, and that is the issue of soda taxes because you've been quite involved in that. And the idea of soda taxes has been around for a while, but uh, some of the work you did establishing uh, the projected impact of a soda tax on consumption and also the revenue generation possibilities from a soda tax, I think have been front and center in uh, politicians considering this. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that work. Let's start with the concept of elasticities. Could you describe what that concept means? And particularly in the in the context of soda and prices. Sure. Uh, well, the concept of uh, price elasticities is key in predicting any changes uh, of uh, economic policies. So, if we want to change prices, we want to know the price elasticity so that we could predict how it's going to change purchases. So, specifically for uh, soda taxes, we're talking about increasing prices, and we want to know how that would change purchases. Uh, we have uh, a lot of studies done looking at the price elasticity of a lot of foods, including soda. Very often we're talking about just kind of average elasticities, uh, talking about kind of an average consumer. So, we, for example, we don't have data just for children or, you know, uh, high-income people. But 
we do have a lot of data to say is that uh, if we have a 10% increase in prices of soda, uh, a reduction in consumption would be about 8 to 10%. And of course, the numbers, you know, differ across studies, but overall, this is uh, kind of, you know, an average estimate. So if we're talking about a 20% increase in prices, the reduction would be also 20, 25% in, um, in consumption, which is significant. And how solid are those numbers? I know that you've You've evaluated uh, the elasticity of soda consumption, and some other economists have as well. How much confidence do you think we can have in the likelihood that those are the changes that would occur if price changes occurred through taxation? I think we have a, a you know, pretty good confidence in these numbers. Uh, but like I said, we're talking about kind of this average consumer. So it might change. You know, For some people, it might be very significant. For some people, a 20% increase in prices, uh, you know, sort of a little bit more expensive, they wouldn't care, and they would be buying the same amount. But overall, at the popula- population level, I feel we can, con- you know, we're pretty confident about these numbers. What we cannot predict is how... Uh, consumption or purchases would change if we had a really, really significant increase in prices, for example, you know, 50 to 100%, because just our economic models really, you know, don't allow us to make uh, predictions like that. But uh, if we're talking about it, when it to maybe 30, 40% um, price uh, increases, I think there's pretty much, you know, the same agreement that the price elasticity is about minus one, meaning you know, for the same amount, the same price increase, you get the same reduction in consumption. Some economists economists have brought up the issue of substitution. Could you describe what that means and what they're talking about? Uh, Well, there is some concern, for example, that we have a tax on soda. People would just substitute uh, soda purchases with other products, also, you know, high in calories. And one example is uh, juice which, you know, wouldn't be taxed under soda taxes, uh, but has the same uh, amount of calories or milk, which would be another example, or just, you know, other foods high in sugar. So there's some concern. And uh, when we are trying to predict uh, changes in purchases, we are talking about cross-price elasticity. So if we change the price of soda, how is it going to affect prices of uh, juice or consumption purchases of uh, juice and milk and so forth. So there's some work uh, looking at it, and um, it is very, it is just very, very difficult to consider all products that might change uh, as a result of changes in soda price. Well, do you think the argument that a tax would be futile because simple, people would simply substitute 100% for other beverages does that make any sense? It does not. Uh, I think there will be some substitution. Uh, there's no question about it. The question is just by how much. And, um, and I, of course, you know, economists differ in terms of what uh, they predict. Uh, there's some kind of, you know, some discussions that maybe we ha- will have about 25%, 30% substitution. But I would say most people who are experts in this field uh, say there will, as a result, there will be substitu- substitution, but uh, overall we'll have a net reduction in calories. So yes, for sure there will be sub- some substitution, but not uh, as big as a reduction in uh, soda. You know, among the valuable things that you've done uh, have been to create a revenue calculator that appears on the Rudd Center website. And just to make a plug for it, if you Google Rudd Center tax calculator, you'll come right to the site where this is. Would you explain what that calculator is about and how it's used? Sure. Any user can uh, access this calculator and uh, predict uh, 
tax revenues uh, for uh, for their state or uh, city, and for uh, I would say 2012 through 2015 that we have now, and uh, for example, use uh, one cent per ounce tax and see how uh, the government uh, in their state uh, could you know what revenues the government in their state would get from a tax on uh, sugar sweetened beverages or on all beverages. And I know that speaking to some politicians who've considered the taxes, their revenue calculator has been so helpful because they can sit down and find out how much a tax would raise for their particular city or their particular state. Um, and the numbers become very large because people are consuming so much soda. So that becomes a very valuable resource for people. So I know how important it was that you develop that. Let, let me end with a broad question. It wasn't that long ago where it seemed like economists really weren't paying much attention to the obesity and nutrition issues at all. Some agriculture economists were paying attention to things like subsidies, but not many people were paying in the economics field were paying attention to obesity. And it seemed like the first generation of economics e- economists who studied this were looking at economic explanations for obesity. Um, but now that it seems like there's a new generation of people, and I'd certainly put you in this generation of people that are looking for changes in economic policy and how those might bring about improvements in nutrition. Do, am I sensing that the field is going in that direction? Are you, are you seeing a lot other economists interested in the topic? Do you see interest building? Where do you think this will go in the future? I agree. I think uh, there were a lot of economists um maybe like 10 years ago, was at first look at obesity as uh, um, trying to justify, that, uh, to, to draw attention that there is a problem. So there were a lot of studies showing uh, uh, obesity and healthcare expenditures and, uh, you know, basically a lot of studies just to show this is a problem and we have to pay attention. What we're doing now, um, economists are doing now, we're trying to find ways to solve this problem and we're talking about you know sort of taxes and we're talking about lots of policies economic policies like for example incentivize uh, purchases of healthy foods by snap uh, participants changes in the week food packages and so forth so a lot of policies that we hope will help to um, you know solve the problem you know i see that as a very positive development because just my, my own instincts tell me that these economic policies and factors are enormously important. And they're not the only thing that's driving diet, but they're very important. And the degree to which uh, economists are beginning to study this and young people in graduate school are beginning to study it uh, from an economic perspective that we only stand to benefit from that. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm happy about your optimism and the fact that more people are looking into this. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. And just um, to conclude, let's think about how successful economic policies were with smoking and reducing smoking in uh, in the country. And um, let's hope that you know we'll find policies that will help to achieve the same outcome with obesity. I think that is a very positive note to end on. In the the smoking example, there is something to be learned from that. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So our guest was Dr. Tanya Andreeva, Director of Economic Initiatives at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, where you'll find lots of resources about food and food policy issues, including links to the other podcasts that we've recorded with excellent guests who have visited the Rudd Center. Thank you.